0: back. The opportunity here for FinTech we think is amazing when it comes to emerging markets because they have the technology and they're progressing in terms of standard of living to you know, that emerging market consumer is having a higher standard of living. They're now having the ability to access smartphones. They now have more cash in their pocket, so to speak. And now the easiest path for them is to use FinTech apps on their phone to pay for goods and services, to apply for loans, to invest money.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another session of Opto, and I have the great pleasure of introducing Christian Magoon today, CEO at Amplify ETFs. How are you doing today, Christian?
0: Hey, it's great to be with you, Ed, and I'm I'm doing well. Uh, We're going back to school here in the U.S. uh, here in mid-August, so uh, kind of the start to the back half of the year has commenced.
1: Yeah. So it starts to get busy from middle of August, is it? Yeah.
0: You know, in the marketplace, certainly uh, after Labor Day, things really heat up. But uh, now with everything going on, the Federal Reserve and some of the market activity, August is actually starting to become a busy month as well. So, uh, yeah, we're we're quite focused coming out of the summer here and looking forward to uh, the fall.
1: Yeah, the market never ceases to amaze me at the moment. How uh, there's always something happening. Like July and August used to be a quiet month. I can't remember the last July and August that was quiet. A few years, it's been uh, quite a lot of activity going on. Yeah, yeah. You
0: know, it's interesting with all the kind of global connectedness of the markets now, it doesn't seem like there is a kind of a <laughs> holiday period for investors or the markets. Uh, I will say this summer, it's been interesting from our perspective, flows have kind of slowed down. It definitely seems like given the uncertainty, people aren't really, or investors aren't really sure what to do with their money. We're seeing a lot of uh, investors kind of stay put, uh, although I think some of this recent growth rally has is, is definitely uh, created a little bit of fear of missing out. So it'll be interesting to see when investors kind of finally return turn in the fall here if they go towards the, the FOMO trade and go after some of these games.
1: It is interesting that dynamic, isn't it, where the, things got start going up so much that you do you know you get the FOMO trade and then people start going in which drives up even more and it can perpetuate. Homewards. That's right, and there's so
0: much cash cash on the sidelines. I mean, to get you know five percent from money markets with you know very low risk has been appealing after last year. Uh, but I think as investors have seen, you know the Nasdaq run and to some extent the SP run into uh, the summer here, uh, that five percent maybe isn't as appealing now when you see some of the uh, major indexes up double digits. So uh, this will be interesting going into the fall to see if uh, you know investors start to take that cash off the sidelines or if they still don't believe in this rally and just want to collect that coupon every month from their money markets.
1: Well, we're here today to talk about about fintech and the fintech revolution. So I thought we could just start, broadly speaking, how do you define the fintech industry?
0: Yeah, well, it's evolving industry for sure, right? So, you know, in the early days, it was simply using computers, which was kind of revolutionary in banking and and payments and investing. Um, You know, a lot of that used to be done by hand and uh, by book or on paper. And that really kind of started the fintech revolution. And then it's kind of merged into you know new fields now where we're seeing the digitization of a variety of different industries, uh, whether it's investing, you know, being able to open a brokerage account on your phone to buy and sell stock. Or bonds on your phone, banking to do transfers. I mean, when's the last time many of the listeners actually stepped foot physically in a bank? Um, it's it's really changed based off the technology uh, that's out there, and you know we're seeing it evolve even more now with uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. And this is really just kind of the financial services well realm uh, embracing technology and becoming more and more digital. And probably the uh, biggest uh, inflection point uh, for that has been the smartphone. The computer initially was but now smartphone has taken over where we do so many transactions you know over that smartphone and uh you know more people in the world have smartphones yep. than bank accounts so uh, that is kind of the vessel that fintech flows through and it's only getting to be uh, more kind of inclusive not only here in the u.s but around the world and that's really why we're focused on this uh, unique market segment and do you include
1: dis- digital assets in that? Or is that, do you, yeah, absolutely. So, you
0: know, all forms of kind of financial assets or transactions really fit into uh, these buckets. So, you know, digital assets, uh, cryptocurrency, and even some of the digital offerings that whether it's stable coins or even, you know, we think in the future, um, some of the uh, bond type uh, transactions will be done through kind of a digital asset realm. And we've seen several uh, central banks do that. So, um, you know, this this kind of realm is everything from companies that are providing services through uh, financial technology to companies that are writing the software that backs it, companies that are helping to encode and secure these transactions. So it's a really robust area when you uh, start to think of everything that uh, touches you from a financial standpoint, being kind of put on your smartphone and being digitized. And uh, we're only at the beginning of it because now, yeah, the tool set is there, but uh, the next iteration is going to be what AI and the machine learning do to these categories, which um, I think will kind of transcend just being a tool and instead actually, offer you smart advice, let's just say, or recommendations or optimizing some of your, uh, whether it's your bank accounts or how you are investing or spending your money. So pretty exciting uh, field to have exposure to. And we think this is a market segment that um, could be as revolutionary as the internet is in general to people's financial lives.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's moved a a long way if you consider... 20 years ago, you know, it, I mean, it's changed so much. The amount know, of new companies. I mean, mobile app. You couldn't manage your finances in, on mobile apps or anything like this. I didn't. It was. I mean, this was the nascent days of of mobile phones, really, as well, wasn't it? So it has moved forward dramatically. And you know, I, I believe you're right that there's a lot more to go, uh, especially as you know the demographics change and you're getting a younger demographic. There's there's used to. They've been brought up with smartphones, right? It's like their go-to device. Um, I think we'll see see more and more of this. So at Amplify, you you believe it's an opportune time to not just be thinking about fintech, but emerging market fintech in, in particular? Why do you take that? Yeah, Yeah. so
0: we're in the West, right? So, you know, we've had computers and, and widespread smart, smartphones for many years. I think we take it for granted. There's unbelievable saturation there. At the same time, we're a heavily banked company, a uh, country, or uh, series of countries in the West where, you know, it's unusual to hear somebody doesn't have a bank account or doesn't have a credit card or only uses cash. So there is a certain amount of progress and uh, ups. that can happen in the uh, West with fintech. Uh, But we think the bigger opportunity and kind of the sweet spot is the 85 percent of the world's population that's in emerging markets. Uh, This is China. This is India, where they really skipped a lot of the technological uh, steps that we went through in the West and really uh, went straight to smartphones and are heavily relying on smartphones. At the same time, historically, many of these emerging market economies haven't had uh, the wealth over time and thus you haven't seen many of these uh, countries be very banked, meaning more people have smartphones there than actually have bank accounts. There's a huge amount of unbanked people in these countries. So for example, China has 200 million of unbanked uh, people. India, 100 million of unbanked people. When you look at that segment, you actually find out the majority, more than 80% of those unbanked people have a smartphone. So um, the opportunity here for fintech we think is amazing when it comes to emerging markets because they have the technology and they're progressing in terms of standard of living to you know that emerging market consumer is having a higher standard of living. They're now having the ability to access smartphones. They now have more cash in their pocket, so to speak. And now the easiest path for them is to use fintech apps on their phone to pay for goods and services, to apply for loans, to invest money. This is uh, really the lifeblood of this huge population center, again, 85% of the world's population in emerging markets. So at Amplify, we focused on the emerging market stocks that are part of fintech. Uh, That's very unique in the US industry. There's a variety of just general fintech ETFs that have maybe some minor exposure to emerging markets. Uh, This is the whole uh, other side, which is 100% emerging market stocks in the fintech space, diversified across a variety of industries that we'll talk about. And we think that's the sweet spot in the long term to really uh, grab the greenfield growth opportunity that fintech represents. And hey, just as an aside, not only this may be, we think, the best area for long-term growth, you're also serving a population that is uh, in need of these services. And I think there's a certain social aspect or impact aspect to that if you're concerned about that. If you're not not no worries we still think the growth is going to be there because of demographics because of their embrace of technology because of the kind of the increase of wealth in emerging markets the new emerging market consumer so we're excited about that area and feel like we have a very unique fund that to my knowledge doesn't exist anywhere in the world
1: yeah and are you are we talking about primarily china and india or are there other countries outside that, that you think has you know good potential as well yeah there's close to 20
0: uh, countries that we're looking at across the funds uh, selection uh, universe so it isn't just China and India uh, but because they have such large populations they're great talking points you know in in our fund which is amplify emerging market fintech ETF we do have uh, country caps so we can't be more than 25 percent exposed to an individual country uh, so you think of many of the other countries that uh, make up uh, emerging markets You know, countries in in Africa, for example, or other parts of of Asia, Latin America, we have exposure really around the globe uh, to these different types of fintech companies. And again, kind of exclusively emerging markets. um, Emerging markets certainly is an interesting area uh, relative to, for example, just investing in developed markets tends to be more volatile. But along with that volatility tends to come some of the upside over long periods of time, similar to, you know, kind of the relationship. Relationship of large cap stocks, looking at versus small cap stocks, where you see more volatility in small cap stocks. But over the long term, you've seen outsized uh, returns or alpha driven from those smaller cap companies. And that's in return for being able to stomach higher volatility.
1: Yes, the price you pay for innovation is, is the volatility, isn't it? Could you go through the main growth drivers, you think, for, for these emerging market economies? We discussed uh, the fact that a large amount of them don't have bank accounts. So that's one, one aspect. What other aspects are there?
0: Yeah. So, you know, from a demographic standpoint, there's a few you can touch on. They have a very young population on average, which is much more tech savvy. Many of these younger populations have grown up only knowing using a smartphone, um, whereas the West- that's not so much the case. Many of us maybe grew up using a computer and then ended up using a smartphone. And certainly a lot of the wealth in the West is in the older generation. In the US, the baby boomers, which you know may know their way around a computer a, a bit, but maybe our challenge to do financial transactions on, on a smartphone. So the youth and the tech savvy nature of uh, these emerging markets is big. Also, if you look at the governments of these emerging markets, you know they definitely want to see uh, their citizenry increase in terms of their affinity to, towards investing and banking they it doesn't benefit these governments to have a cash society which is what most of these countries previously had prior to fintech where everything was done in cash it's hard to account for it definitely creates a lot of issues including potentially corruption whereas you know using fintech payment apps you know, WhatsApp for example is used quite a bit in China to pay for goods and services that allows for a lot more uh, visibility and um, legitimacy around kind of fin- around financial transactions so you know government support of this is is important too in these countries, and then as you mentioned, you know historically th- these countries are ripe for innovation in the sense that you know they generally have seen an increased standard of living uh, dramatically over the last ten years. You know, whether it's countries like China or India as, as kind of poster children for doing more Western manufacturing, even you know doing some outsourced work from a servicing standpoint, that's increased the standard of living dramatically. So. Many people in these countries have gone from maybe not having the luxury of investing or or opening a bank account or having the ability to apply for a loan to now having high enough standard of living that they're starting to think about these things and are able to do these things. So. It's a variety of factors that really, I think, are quite interesting that you know lead us to emerging markets. And then, you know, the last kind of factor I would say is fintech is just, you know, racing forward. Um, you know, it's no longer just a tool. There's advice. Uh, there's suggestions. There's optimization through artificial intelligence and machine learning where, you know, these um, these companies with payment apps or investment apps or lending apps are able to do things much quicker than you know physically going in and for example getting a loan. There's some of these lending apps that may give you a, a decision on a loan within two hours after you submit to the app. And some of us can remember the days that you might have to wait a week or two to hear back from a bank for credit. These apps also allow for micro loans, uh, which didn't really exist in traditional finance, and that's a big deal in emerging markets as there are many small business that are trying to just get you know funding to uh, pay for a food cart or a, a delivery vehicle. So quite interesting area. I think it's uh, a great demographic meeting just a technology and, and use case that only is becoming more compelling. And when those two collide, we think uh, the best opportunity, again, is emerging markets, fintech.
1: And in terms of the types of companies specifically, from emerging market fintech, what what sort of types of companies are we we seeing?
0: Yeah, so we look at kind of six categories across the portfolio in the ETF, which is EMFQ, emerging market fintech. So uh, payment companies are a big allocation in the portfolio. Actually, there's a lot of payment companies. There's definitely been kind of a leading edge uh, application for fintech on being able to pay seamlessly. You know, we take for granted being able to... maybe use uh, American Express or a Visa or a MasterCard in, in the US. That's not really the case, you know, overseas. So many of these payment apps
1: Are these the same companies, Christian? Yeah, these are,
0: well, these are versions. uh, Things like
1: this, or or
0: are they different? Yeah, so they're different. Um, These aren't the visas and the the MasterCards and the American Expresses. They're uh, generally uh, more digital-focused than card-focused. So these are really the payment pipelines, the payment apps, so you know the payment app where you be able to pay somebody you know five dollars for maybe a, a a ride in in Thailand uh, to and from uh, work you can pay them right on their on a, a financial uh, fintech app that then processes it through its software and through the payment whether it's their own payment pipeline or another company's payment pipeline and then ultimately uh, you know flows through to a bank so it's not only sometimes the apps it the underlying pipelines there that allow for, for digital payments. And, you know, uh, most commerce uh, or commerce is... Generally, trending more and more there towards that in the fintech area, uh, simply because they l- kind of made the leap from cash, not to checks, uh, not uh, but from cash to uh, digital payments. Uh, the other side is banking. Uh, many of the fintech companies now are able to reach these unbanked populations because yeah. they're available yeah. on a smartphone, and you can you don't have to set foot in a bank. You can you know have your digital ID and set up payment details through your phone, and having that bank. Mm-hmm account is important because it gives you a credit history you know it, there was a time that many of these people in in these countries just didn't have the luxury of that because of their standard of living. Now they do. It's quick, easy, and efficient. And that's often used as a source of payment for these payment transactions. The other side is a little bit uh, different, which is lending and credit. And we talked a little bit about microloans and you know traditional loans being done simply via your smartphone. Previous iterations uh, you, you know, may go to somebody in your neighborhood or uh, a person in your city who is known to lend out uh, money and it was recorded in, in their ledger. You know, Today, this can be done through a national organization or even a global organization on your smartphone of, in an emerging market country, which has increased the opportunity, it's reduced the interest rate and allowed for not only uh, larger loans, but also uh, smaller micro loans, which is super important in those economies. Another side is insurance. Uh, And you can also, you know, obtain insurance, whether that's business insurance or personal insurance now uh, uh, through these apps. So there's insurance companies that are included in in the portfolio Uh, kind of corresponding to that are uh, probably the more one of the more popular areas, investment and trading companies. So, you know, you can trade stocks and bonds and crypto and many of these emerging markets. And, you know, that was almost unattainable in some of these countries before, uh, unless you had a bank account and unless you you know, knew the right people. Now, simply you have a smartphone and you have a source of funds, you can provide ID, you're up and trading all these types of different assets that you may never have had even access to in some of these countries. Finally, digital assets is included kind of in that that realm and you know the ability to custody digital assets, trade digital assets, yeah. stake digital assets. These that's, you know, part of it. So really there's six categories we look at just to summarize, payments, banking, lending and credit, insurance, investments in trading, and then digital assets. So those are the six categories that the EMFQ portfolio falls into. And essentially this is an index-based portfolio that looks at you know companies in these categories in the emerging market countries that we're able to custody assets in. And then companies with 50% or more of their revenue uh, from these types of business activities end up getting included yep. in the portfolio. Uh, and then as we mentioned before, you know, no country can be more than 25% of the portfolio, the portfolio gets rebalanced on a quarterly basis. So, you know, we're trying to stay away from taking big bets on certain countries. So you probably could have uh, half or more of your portfolio exposed to China, for example, because they're massive, you know, amount of population and industry. But again, we don't want this to be a China specific portfolio. It's inclusive of China. Uh, But we also want to include many of the other interesting emerging market countries out there. And we can talk a little bit about later kind of the country breakdown, et cetera, of the portfolio. Uh,
1: six very interesting themes or sub themes uh, that you've described there. Is there one in particular that that uh, if you had to choose, gun to your head, do you think is the most promising over the next like, five, 10 years? Yeah. So
0: I, I think um, I, would, I would say there's a two, Ed. So in terms of FinTech becoming more of a utility, like um, like we would think of, you know, water and electricity. That definitely is the payments area. I think that is only going to grow and continue to grow at a slow basis because these countries are going uh, away from doing cash transactions for a variety of reasons, and the government is pushing that in many of these countries. Um, we see some- still
1: largely cash based. Is it? Sorry to interrupt, but the, right now today i mean you it's going to be way over 50% is still cash is it that's right so you look at countries yeah.
0: like just off the top of my head china india mexico who are who have traditionally been very cash focused from a government standpoint, are pushing to be less and less, you know, cash oriented. And, you know, one of the big problems in many of these countries is what cash does in terms of corruption, uh, because it's not very traceable. And um, also, it's hard for the government to keep track of. Now, there are some negative sides to having a cashless society, Uh, certainly depending on what the government's political standpoint is, it could be used to monitor and control people. So we, we know that's the case. But by and large, um, transforming kind of unbanked uh, people into being banked um, and being able to pay uh, through their phone uh, to not have to go, for example, to the post office, get a loan, go buy your groceries with that post office loan, and then turn around maybe the next week and go to the post office and repay the loan. Instead, doing that all on your, your smartphone is a big kind of change in quality of life and efficiency. Um, that'd be just a, a one example of how that might work. So I think the payment side is going to be kind of the, the steady eddy, the foundation. But in terms of the upside, I really think the kind of the investment trading area and you could probably put digital assets in there is going to be huge. I mean, we all know what access to capital markets does for us as individuals in terms of trying to pursue our financial goals. And we know that when we have additional income that goes beyond what we need to pay for food and housing and we're looking long term, a lot of that, you know, income ends up going into investments, uh, to, you know, essentially grow for the future. And because of the increased uh, overall standard of living by of consumers in these countries, I just think I think the flows are going to be enormous. And there's going to be like the U.S. a a big wealth transfer happening over the next, you know, 10 to 20 years. And as much as, um, you know, we see it here in the U.S. with baby boomers and the World War II generation, you know, overseas, many of these countries, the older generation essentially may keep money at home. Uh, may keep money at a relative's house, do kind of uh, safeguard it because they maybe don't have the tech savvy, and they may not trust, you know, having their their funds in institutions. And that's kind of different than the younger generation who has access to maybe institutions or financial institutions that maybe are not even. Based in their country, there may be regional kind of institutions or companies that seem to have a higher level of uh, faith and trust, for example, than maybe the local bank in your small town in a province, etc. So I really think investments in trading is going to be kind of a massive growth area, especially as AI comes on the scene. And, and kind of guides these new investors into certain types of investments or allocations, because it's intimidating. If you've never been on an investment app, you've never done any of this before and you start it out, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, you may hear from your uncle or, or somebody, you know, that has done a little bit about this. But what if there's an AI assistant coming alongside you? You know, asking you for, you know, what is your, you know, risk tolerance and your time horizon, you know, what are your goals? And then recommending investments. And I think that's where this is really going to kind of propel that investments and trading side into kind of the next sphere, because again, 85% of the world's population living in these countries and their standard of living is growing faster than the West. Uh now they've started at a much lower level for sure. But you know, it continues to be a very bullish story over the long term. And when standard of living increases, as we know, consumers move up the food chain in terms of what they're doing for their money. And, and you know, as you get past kind of survival and comfort you start to look at investing and for the future and saving for the future so i'm really excited about the kind of the investment and trading area uh, on the growth side and then kind of the steadier if you will march of the payments uh, payment companies because that's just the lifeblood of these economies
1: yep that's very interesting you, you, you touched on the the wealth transfer that everyone you know talks about for the western world you think the circumstances for that to happen is still the same in emerging markets as well so that's going to that that process going to be going on over the next 10 15 years yeah they certainly are are
0: there and you know they they definitely have a younger population but that's not to forget that they do have an older population and you know, some of these countries, the life expectancy isn't what you see in the U.S. So, yeah, that wealth transfer happens. You know, anytime I think you move, you know, a, a generation or two in terms of where wealth is at, uh, that's very positive for innovation and in this case, financial technology. So, you know, I think of uh, you know my grandparents, two generations ahead of me, and none of them are living now, but some recently were over the last five years, and you know, they weren't even getting on a computer. And then I look at one generation ahead of me, which is my parents. And they may, they're more apt to walk into a bank or, you know, deal with a, a insurance company face-to-face with an individual. And, you know, whereas now from my standpoint, there's a lot I do online. And I think it's just that natural progression, you know, it's, it's easier for us to do uh, these things online. And uh, as I think you and I didn't grow up, you know, with from day one with a smartphone or doing, you know, financial transactions online when we were, you know, know, first on our own financially, uh, that probably hit us several years into our working life. And now it It's very comfortable. Um, And, you know, I have a a daughter and um, I'm guessing that she, as the next generation, you know, her first financial transaction likely will be, you know, on a smartphone or some type of uh, digital transaction from an application standpoint. So, again, really bullish for the fintech uh, segment in general. That's why there's a variety of funds in the industry that focus on that space. We've just taken a different approach and said, where do we think fintech really could grow and have explosive dynamics? And we think it's in this emerging market sphere. And that's why we're concentrated with EMFQ with 100% of the portfolio in that space.
1: We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. I had a question about more of a macro question on the US dollar and its impact you know, on emerging markets. It's obviously very important to the, the, those markets. Where, where do you see us going forward from now? Obviously, the, the after some very good strength in the US dollar, we had a bit of a sell-off over the last year or so, I suppose, and it's been stable over the last couple of months. Lots of yeah, there's people on both sides of the it seems like a, it's very un, uncertain what's going to happen going forward. But from your perspective, what do you see happening?
0: It's definitely a great question when you're looking at emerging markets, because the strength of the dollar, um, either, you know, a strong dollar hurts emerging markets and a weak dollar definitely helps it out. So that is a factor that is a risk, if you will, when you're investing in emerging markets. But that's part of the diversification you get in your portfolio by including emerging markets. So, you know, my, my personal opinion is I think the dollar is going to lose strength over the coming years. uh, When you look at, you know, the recent downgrade of the U.S. uh, credit uh, uh, rating, you look at political situation in the U.S. around kind of this uh, debt ceiling. It's very contentious and um, seems to be kind of a last minute decision every time that's based off political compromise that probably doesn't bode well for the strength of the dollar. In addition, there's so much debt that the United States has. One way to minimize that debt is to have a weaker So there's incentive over the long term to kind of disinflate, if you will, the dollar. So it's easier to pay back those debts. So I think kind of the, the we'll call it the longer term macro story on the dollar is likely weaker over the next, say, three to five years, which I think will help emerging market stocks. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, generally over the last 10 years, emerging markets haven't really produced a ton of alpha, if any, against uh, US markets, uh, at least or more developed markets. It hasn't always been the case, right? There's been periods where we've seen strong outperformance by emerging markets. It's generally during a time when the dollar is weaker, or maybe U.S. valuations peak and emerging market valuations are are just so low at that point that they become more attractive and just more of a, a, a value, so to speak. And I think both of those dynamics are in play right now. You know, we've seen some recent outperformance of emerging markets last year versus. The US markets, uh, EEM, you know, the MSCI emerging markets index and a related ETF had some outperformance last year versus the S&P 500. And we're seeing a, you know, a decent return there this year. But, uh, this year we are seeing, uh, kind of S&P, I think outperform, uh, emerging markets. Uh, and certainly it's, I think on the back of a bit, of a, a bit of a more of a dollar, uh, uh, strength. Uh, also, you know, let's not forget that, you know, emerging markets, do have a fair amount of Chinese exposure. And, um, you know, the Chinese economy has kind of been stumbling a little bit. And uh, even today, you know, in the middle of August, we're hearing some you know concerns over some of their banking system and and some of the property transactions surrounding it. And even, you know, China going to ease rates to try to stimulate the economy a little bit more over there and increase GDP. So, you know, there is risk, certainly when you're looking at emerging markets, that some of the largest weighted countries, uh, China. China or India have some unique risks or you know, dynamics that can impact it. But you know, overall, we think this is a great market to take a look at in terms of um, getting exposure to international in general, but also emerging markets. You know, just looking at the year-to-date return of MSCI, MSCI emerging markets index is up a little over 5%. And we're seeing uh, EMFQ, our emerging market fintech ETF uh, return a little bit more than double that up about 11.8% year to date. So we've seen some alpha there. I think that's a little bit based off uh, investors becoming a little bit more comfortable with risk on this year. No question, you know, fintech stocks are in the category of uh, similar category of like NASDAQ 100 type stocks risk on. So, you know, during, you know, financial crisis or risk-off periods, growth stocks, including emerging market fintech and emerging markets in general, tend to not fare well. But during kind of markets that embrace taking risk, uh, these uh, types of investments tend to do well and have the potential to deliver some alpha. So being able to double the broad-based emerging market return uh, year-to-date through mid-July has been a nice, you know, kind of amount of wind in EMFQ sales uh, in terms of, you know, adding some alpha and we'll see kind of what happens in the back half of the year with us dollar strength. And then again, what's the appetite globally for taking on risk here, uh, given kind of the wall of worry that seems to be, you know, uh, across the entire world from China to uh, Taiwan, to Russia, to Ukraine, to even some of the political controversies that are happening here in the U S and the related kind of financial policy decisions that are that are occurring. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely an interesting time at the moment. Let's dig into a few areas of the EMFQ. So emerging markets, FinTech, ETF. Very briefly, what's what's the overall objective of the ETF.
0: Yeah, so the overall objective is to give uh, investors uh, broad-based exposure to emerging market fintech stocks. EMFQ has, you know, 42 holdings and when you look at, you know, the country allocations, you've got China, Brazil, Indonesia, Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, Uruguay, Taiwan, and a variety of other countries. Uh, There's even a couple, uh, if you look, check out our website, German listed companies in there. But of course, they're doing business at least 50% of their revenue in emerging markets. So that's why I'll see Germany in case any Germans are watching. No, Germany is not a considered emerging market uh, country, but there are companies that uh, have 50% or more of their revenue from emerging markets in the fintech space that are actually listed in Germany. So uh, really what we're trying to do is give you an index rules based approach to invest in this segment. It's very hard to pick one or two stocks to own in this space from a research standpoint, from an access standpoint. So the convenience of the ETF is that it tracks uh, an index, the EQM, uh, Emerging Market Fintech Index, that four times a year looks at all companies that qualify across about 20 countries. And the uh, companies that qualify have to have a minimum market cap of right over $100 have minimum trading volume, and then have to have 50% or more of their revenue coming from one of these fintech segments that we talked about, whether it's lending and credit, banking, payments, investing, and trading, etc. So you're getting a real broad-based shotgun approach, if you will, to owning this segment, and you know it's a way to diversify your exposure to what we think will be ultimately the sweet spot of fintech, which is emerging market stocks.
1: Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, actually, uh, another thing, a benefit of ETFs, which you, you get in this uh, particular ETF, is is there's just the easy exposure to other countries, which can be quite difficult, right? They, like, getting access to Taiwan stocks or you know even Chinese stocks is not not the most straightforward thing for a lot of people, especially with the currency change and things like this. So, it's, you know, there's a big benefit there if you're interested in in this sort of more global exposure.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's certainly value. You know, I think if you went out and tried to buy these 42 uh, stocks in in you know a variety of countries, it would likely cost you. I think a multiple of our expense ratio. So our expense ratio is 69 basis points. So um, you know if you uh, if you invest you know a hundred dollars, you're going to pay I guess six dollars and ninety cents. I think if my math is correct at 69 basis points less than 1%. So I think the trading costs alone of being able to acquire even you know 50 shares or 100 shares of each one of these uh, companies, uh, assuming you'd actually be able to know what companies to, to purchase and do the research on your own. Of course, given the fact that it's an ETF, you could look at our at the amplifyetfs.com website and see every one of these uh, companies on a daily basis and the portfolio weighting to each one of these companies. So you could certainly replicate it but I think it would be very hard to do for for 69 basis points on top of it you know you have the tax efficiency of the ETF so as the portfolio changes and rebalances four times a year that's all done within kind of the tax efficiency of an ETF so you don't have the uh, impact that you would have if you did it on on your own you're able to really minimize you know trading costs as well as tax um, liabilities which we think is important because uh, these are some dynamic companies that can move quite a bit in a short period of time. So not only is it important to rebalance the portfolio for risk control purposes, it's also important to rebalance and, and reassess the portfolio quarterly to be able to capture newly traded IPOs that come on to the market that qualify. So this is something where you can you know, own the portfolio and feel confident that four times a year, there's going to be rebalancing and a reassessment of the actual amount of companies across these uh, different countries that are investable and that the etf will be able to invest in this growing universe of companies can
1: you just touch on a few of the primary holdings in the etf and maybe what theme they they're in and why why they're there
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, a couple, I'll maybe go through a couple categories. So on the investment and trading side, we have, you know, XP, which is really focused in, uh, the Brazilian market doing investment and trading kind of applications for Brazil, which is a a certainly a quite, quite a important uh, country on the payment side. You know, we have network international that, you know, deals with kind of uh, loans, microloans, uh, Credit uh, applications, and also has some payment capabilities. They're mostly focused in uh, the Middle East and Africa. If you look at uh, Mercado Libre, they have Mercado Pay, which is one of the largest payment companies in Latin America. A lot of Latin Americans using Mercado uh, Libre and their kind of various payment applications to process things online and not have to worry about producing cash. You know, we also have Alibaba, uh, which certainly has... Ali Pay as part of its um, underlying group of companies, which is a, a big deal for using the Alibaba platform to transact business on, but then also kind of make payments. You know, we've got Ping, an insurance company, which is uh, really pressed forward on doing more and more insurance through kind of the digital side. You know, kind of speaking more generally, when we look at our current allocation across kind of the different types of FinTech stocks and you know, our biggest allocation right now is to uh, payment companies. They represent about 51% of the portfolio. And it's because payments are really the lifeblood of, you know, how you get to an investment and trading app, how you uh, are able to receive lending and credit, um, how you transact as you buy on your phone, uh, maybe online retail type goods and maybe services. So that's the largest category today. You know, kind of the next several largest are investment and trading companies at 11% of the portfolio, uh, banking uh, stocks at 11% of the portfolio, and then lending and credit at 11% of the portfolio. So when you think about it, these are kind of all bedrock industries, call it the slow grower, the pipelines that are enabling fintech. And then you get into the smaller segments, which would be uh, real estate services, uh, fintech software, digital assets, wallets, so quite a diverse portfolio, uh, just from a country perspective. You know, as I uh, kind of mentioned before, China and India are such large countries that they have many listed companies that fit into the fintech space. So about 22% of the portfolio is weighted to China, 19% is in Brazil, and uh, you see uh India being part of kind of the other country section of the portfolio. Indonesia is 12% of the portfolio. Singapore has a, a, a about 17% of the portfolio. And then you have the countries like Taiwan, Uruguay, and even Hong Kong, which is kind of a quasi area to list Chinese companies. So quite a, a bit of diversification by countries. And you can tell kind of some of these largest countries do have some of the weight, again, with the top two countries currently being uh, China and in Brazil in the portfolio.
1: Very interesting theme. Um, so thank you for taking us through it today, Christian. I think yeah, like you were talking about it, particularly the emerging markets, which is probably a lot of people not haven't thought about. And there aren't other products available as far as I'm aware. It's a very interesting way to get exposure to that. Is there anything you'd like to say uh, before before we wrap it up? Uh, Maybe you could also just comment on where people can find out more information about uh, the ETFs and uh, maybe any information you you release related to rebalancing, etc.? Sure. So,
0: yeah, we think EMFQ is really one of a kind. It does focus in on the we think the long term sweet spot of fintech from a demographic standpoint, and also think it could actually do some social good in these in these countries for the most part, uh, serving the unbanked population. We have a variety of materials on our website. That's AmplifyETFs.com, and you can simply click on the ticker EMFQ, and you'll see quarterly portfolio. Uh, commentary on uh, not only some of the, c- the news that happened in the emerging market fintech area, but also updates on some of the key holdings and the performance update. Of course, every day you can actually see every stock we hold in EMFQ on our website, as well as our country exposure, our market cap exposure, our exposure to the different you know six segments of fintech. It's all transparent for investors to see. Uh, we'd love for you to take a look at that. The portfolio does rebalance on a quarterly basis so when we do a, a rebalance that is updated so we encourage you to check out our website we have white papers infographics holdings etc available that are you know updated as frequently as daily and uh, other items that are updated month end or quarter end so we want to be a resource there if you're interested in this space you know i think we are the only fun company that i know of in the world that's offering this this. This emerging market fintech ETF, very convenient. We think a reasonable cost and a way for you to over the long term, we think capitalize in the fintech revolution in an area that has 85% of the world's population, that is the most unbanked in the world, but has a massive amount of smartphone penetration. So we think that's the bumper sticker uh, reason to really consider EMFQ for investors long-term growth portfolio
1: that's great thanks Christian have a good rest of the weekend. and yeah, thanks, thanks again for giving us the opportunity to speak to you